Good morning, everyone. It was great to see so many of you last Sunday in person and do worship and to be able to worship together in person too. It's something that feels like such a special and sacred moment these days. And I know so many more of you couldn't be with us at Stubbins for various reasons. And I am still praying that the day will come very soon when vaccines are available for all and we can safely gather together to, for worship. This is a vital part of what it looks like to be Christ's church, to gather together in his name. Now, I'm going to keep naming what I'm about to say because in many spaces, it can feel like things are back to normal again. As travel resumes and kids are going to camps and people are starting to return to in-office in work. But even though on the outside, life looks like it's returning to normal. Life for a lot of us continues to be a challenge whether it's our mental health, our strained relationships, worries and concerns with our kids, growth and their well-being, or our physical health. Time is becoming scarce again as activities resume. Time to heal, time to be still, time to read and reflect, time to listen to God's voice and time to pray. So I hope and pray that whatever you gain during the pandemic, that was good for your soul and for your relationships, I pray that you will prioritize preserving those good things, even as activities fill your calendar and as life resumes. Something that's familiar to many of us parents during the pandemic was learning to work with young kids in the home. I'm reminded of a viral video from a few years ago when a professor was on BBC News for a live interview to discuss South Korean politics. Let's take a look. Happen all the time. The question is how do democracies respond to those scandals? Uh, and what will it mean for, uh, for the wider region? I think one of your children's just walked in. I mean, shift, shifting, shifting sands in the region, do you think relations with the North may change? Um, I would be surprised if they do. <laughs> the, um, pardon me. My apologies. <laughs> what is this going to be for the region? My apologies. North, uh, sorry. Um, North Korea, North, uh, South Korea's policy choices on North Korea have been severely limited. I've watched this video a dozen times and it never gets old. The professor looks mortified as his children just barge in and his poor wife is trying so hard to make things right. In a subsequent interview about the viral video, he said, I thought I'd blown it in front of the whole world. And he was relieved to know that millions of viewers were empathetic to his situation and thought the video was endearing. He even got thousands of Twitter followers as a result after this incident. This video sparked thousands of conversations around the world about how children are seen in society and the struggles of working from home. Little did we know that just a couple years later, we'd be in a pandemic where millions of parents were dealing with the very same issue. Because of this video and the collective positive response, children interrupting meetings have become less mortifying and more real, authentic, and even endearing. As the interview began, based on the dad's demeanor, I can imagine the dad thinking, I've got this. I've got my nifty suit on, my game face, I'm good. 
And just a minute or two later, the chaos ensues. And you see his emotions all come out as he closed his eyes and just tried to restrain all his annoyance. His children interrupting was not part of his game plan. Even though it worked out in the end and gained him some fame and some followers, this was not how he envisioned his live interview on BBC World News. Interruptions, big or small, can be an inconvenience or a major life disruption. Whether it's trying to focus on writing a sermon with kids at home or a routine blood test that requires further testing because of abnormal numbers, or finding out a loved one needs to be suddenly hospitalized because of an injury or an accident. These aren't things we plan for or look forward to in our lives here on earth, and yet they happen. And it's stressful to face them, especially when it's not how we envisioned our lives. The book of Jonah begins with a major life disruption in the life of the prophet Jonah. Many of us grew up learning about Jonah and the whale or the big fish, and that seems to be the exciting part, but that won't be our focus today. We could easily spend a month studying each of the four chapters, and I wish so much that we had more time, but today I'll just be discussing a couple of key points throughout the book. Chapters one and two describe God's command to Jonah and his failure to, to obey it, and chapters three and four describes God's command again to Jonah and how he carries it out successfully, but then complains about it in the end. Chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai saying, go at once to Nineveh, that great city and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Here we have a prophet who experiences a major interruption in his relatively comfortable life, commanded by God to preach to the people of Nineveh, the Israelites' most despised enemy. We know this command from God is a major interruption to his life and something he utterly disagrees with because he travels in the opposite direction from where God calls him to go. And he went as far as he could possibly go, even taking a ship to get there. What's amusing about this whole story is that twice, it mentions that he tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. It kind of reminds me of the times when we used to play hide and seek with our kids and we'd find them like this. This picture was taken by my sister in our old home in Austin. Maybe my kids thought they would be camouflaged in the mess, who knows? But it's absurd to, for Jonah to think that he could actually escape God's presence. Now to share a bit about Jonah, because he's quite a peculiar character and unlike many of the other prophets that we know about in scripture, he was a prophet to the Northern Kingdom of Israel during the early part of the eighth century BC. We know this because he is mentioned another time in the Bible in the book of 2 Kings 14. He was very well liked, um, well paid, popular, respected and appreciated for his role. So to leave this cushy space, to go to Nineveh, home to their most hated enemies, one of the most wicked and murderous people of the world, and to tell them about 
his God. Well, Jonah thought God was out of his mind. You see, during the time of Jonah, the Assyrian empire where Nineveh was located had not been a threat to Israel for a whole generation. So he might be thinking if they're not a threat to us, we're fine and doing well, and we're prosperous as a nation, why should we bother with them? We all have attitudes like Jonah sometimes, right? There's nothing wrong with me, I'm fine. It's them, they're the ones with the issue and it's their issue, not mine. They're the ones who need help, but you know, I'm good. And you know, having very little concern about what our role is in these people's lives. We can have this attitude with our spouse, our supervisor, our colleagues, relatives, even our neighbors. And while it's true, the Ninevites do need God's help. Um, they need help, God's help, namely his mercy and his grace. So did Jonah. And God was commanding Jonah to play a role in extending his mercy to these people. But Jonah kept refusing. He kept refusing because he was blind to his own need for God's grace and blinded by his hate for his enemies. How do you normally see interruptions in your life? For me, it depends. Some are needed like bathroom breaks or lunch breaks when you're working. Some of us may not even be fully present to those needs because, you know, we're just totally in the zone. Some, some interruptions are really welcome. It's like when my five-year-old rushes in to bring me a freshly made smoothie while I'm working or when I get a random text from a friend telling me that she's praying for me. But there are interruptions in life that can feel like the worst timing ever, where the impact feels too great. You've tried escaping, putting it off, or ignoring it, but you're not able to shake it off. What if instead of ignoring, dismissing, minimizing, or running away from the interruption, we saw God in the middle of every interruption? Ah, thank you, God, for that lunch break. I really needed a breather. Thank you, God, for my son. That smoothie he brought me reminds me of the unexpected gifts you give to me. Thank you, God, for the text and for my praying friend. I needed that word of encouragement today. Sometimes we just need to learn to attribute the little things in our lives to the hand of God. But sometimes when interruptions are difficult, challenging, overwhelming, and a threat to our plans, we can struggle with clearly seeing how God is moving. What if in the wrestling we ask God, where are you in this interruption? Is there something you want me to know? Is there something you desire for me to do? Help me to see your movement. Help me to hear your voice. Help me to know your will and help me to follow your will. I wanna encourage you to practice attributing God's hand in the little things in your life. So when the big things come, your mind and your heart are conditioned to ask God first, where are you in all of this? What we learn as we read through the chapters is that Jonah hated the Ninevites so much that it kept him from seeing God's plan in his heart to rescue this spiritually lost city. But God wasn't going to give up on him. So as he's trying to run away from God's presence, this is what happens next. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God, and they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain it down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we might know whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more storming against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. We see here that God's brought this terrible storm, a consequence of Jonah's sin of disobedience on his journey to Tarshish. This boat happened to be filled with non-Israelite sailors whom he didn't know. God was clearly not going to let Jonah carry out his own plan. Somehow in the midst of the storm, Jonah is asleep, sound asleep. And we know this storm must have been awful because even the sailors whom we can assume are experienced, are incredibly afraid. So afraid that they're all calling on each of their gods to help them. So afraid that they're throwing cargo off the ship to lighten the load. And yet Jonah, who knows the one true God, stays asleep. It's perplexing to read about how Jonah is completely unconcerned or unaware of his, his surroundings. People yelling, screaming, the thunder roaring. It's as if he's, he's using sleep as a form of escape to shut out a world that's crying out for help because he is so consumed by his own interests. And what happens next is a moment that just grieves my heart. The captain turns to Jonah and says, what are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. Here we have a pagan, someone who does not know God, call on Jonah using similar words as God as he, when he commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh in the beginning of the chapter. 
get up and go. Even this pagan sailor has more faith in God when he tells Jonah to get up and go call on your God. And what does Jonah do? Absolutely nothing. These are people who are radically different from Jonah, ethnically because they're Gentiles and religiously because they're pagans. And Jonah, because of his own self-interest, jeopardizes the life of everyone on the boat. This interaction between Jonah and someone who does not know God is a wake-up call for many of us in our interactions with those who have yet to believe in Christ. There are people in our spheres of influence, in our midst, that God has placed in our lives to bear witness to who he is. And it may not be through word, but it might be through deed. It might be how we interact with them on a day-to-day basis. Have we fallen asleep in a context where we are on a ship with many who don't have faith in the God that we know and trust? What does it look like for us to get up and go in the midst of a stormy season? Staying asleep in the midst of a storm can feel easier, especially when we struggle with loving certain people in our lives. But God is calling us to get up and go and minister to the spiritually lost. There was a deeper issue in Jonah's heart that needed to be addressed, his sense of identity in relation to others. Because Jonah said nothing, the sailors cast lots, which was a way people in ancient times would make decisions, believing that there was some form of divine direction given through these lots. And when the lot fell on Jonah, it didn't necessarily mean he was guilty just that he was the one who had information that they needed in order to be rescued. And so the questioning began. Tell us, why did this calamity, why has it come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Jonah's response is eye-opening. He replied, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Notice how he didn't respond in the order of the questions asked. His first response was to say he was a Hebrew. Then he shared about his faith. One can deduce that he places a greater emphasis on his own ethnicity above his faith, based on his response, and even based on his attitude towards those who are non-Israelites. This is called nationalism, which I'll share more about in a bit. Introductions are so important, aren't they? I'm still considered relatively new to our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. I attend multiple denomination conferences and retreats a year. Most of them were online this year, but introductions are frequent and they're common, especially in group settings. One thing I noticed early on as I observed my ECC colleagues' introductions was that several of them would start off by saying that they were X generation. They were an X generation covenanter. That their great granduncle or grandparent was part of the covenant church in Sweden and blah, 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 blah. And there's a sense of pride that they exude when they say these things, which is understandable because it's a part of their identity and spiritual heritage that I think should be celebrated and not forgotten. 
At the same time, as a new covenanter who grew up in non-denominational settings, and as a woman of color and being a minority in the room, I'm unsure of the intent of sharing this information as a first introduction. Now, it would be different if they introduced themselves in this way and added that they were overjoyed to see the denomination grow in diversity and value the new and fresh voices that could take the denomination deeper and wider in faith and influence. And admittedly, not only do I sometimes wonder if I'm covenant enough, I sometimes wrestle with whether I'm American enough because I was born in Taiwan and I came to the U.S. when I was one. Or if I'm Chinese enough because though I can speak it, I can't read or write Chinese. These are thoughts that people in the minority or on the outside or marginalized often experience. And it's further intensified when nationalism is adopted by a majority culture. ECC pastor Daniel Hill and author of the book, White Awake, created this graphic that defines this ideology even further. Nationalism is a sense of national consciousness, exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations. Pastor Hill says, this highlights how nationalism, even as an isolated force, can become dangerous quickly. Whereas patriotism describes one's affection for um, or commitment to their country, nationalism describes a view of one's nation as above others. It emphasizes the superior traits of that particular nation and promotes those traits over the traits and values of another. In Jonah's case, he saw his race and his nation as superior to others, even those who are spiritually lost and needy. And we see this ideology fully play out in chapter four. Now, let me just backtrack a bit and give you a quick snapshot of what happens where we had left off. After Jonah had been in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights and repented of his disobedience, because of God's love, grace, and compassion, he made the fish spit Jonah out onto dry land. God then told Jonah to preach to the, to the Ninevites a second time, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And Jonah reluctantly said, said this for three days to the Ninevites. What shocked Jonah was that the Ninevites listened and repented of their evil ways. And even the king of Nineveh repented and believed. And even the animals in Nineveh repented. And when God saw that they had turned from their evil ways, he changed his mind and said he would not bring destruction to the city. Well, instead of rejoicing in God's love, grace, and compassion, Jonah had a meltdown. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I was, I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, just take away my life for it's better for me to die than to live. Why was Jonah so furious? 
Jonah was so angry because he had a false Jewish nationalism and hatred of all non-Jews, especially Assyrians. But what Jonah could not understand about God was the depth of God's grace for the whole world, not just for Jonah's tribe. And God was more concerned with how Jonah was interacting with those who were ethnically and religiously different from him. But Jonah was more concerned with acting in the interests of the Israelites. What God is telling us, the audience in this story, is that we are all called to be agents of reconciliation in this world, that we are called to speak to our neighbors, especially our enemies or those who are radically different from us, people who have different views, different beliefs, different lifestyles, and we're to treat them with tenderness, compassion, and respect. And today's world, especially here in America, it means denouncing nationalism, American nationalism, that we are not above or superior to any other country or people group in this world. We can still be proud to be American and celebrate the freedom that we have as Americans and the people who fought for our freedom. But God has not placed special favor upon us as American Christians because of our relative economic wealth in comparison with other countries or for any other reason for that matter. So let's do a heart check with our identity and how we see ourselves, our race and our ethnicity in relation to the world. Because God's heart, his compassion and his grace is not for one country or one people group, but it is for the entire world. And that includes us. Americans. Jonah could not see this and he could, would not accept this about God. He thought he was superior and favored, which is why he had a meltdown, meltdown when things did not go his way and the Ninevites actually repented of their evil ways. But we are all in need of God's love, mercy, and compassion. God's heart is for all the nation and he has nations and he has called us to be agents of reconciliation for the world. That is at the heart of this story. Beyond the judgment of God lies his grace, mercy, and compassion. That is a theological theme throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 34, six, God says of himself, which is ironic that Jonah quoted scripture during his complaint against God. God says of himself, the Lord is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So despite our sin, despite our rebellion, God, apart from anything we do or don't do, God has compassion upon us. And this is most beautifully illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, even when his lost son asked for his inheritance in advance and squandered it through this rebellious lifestyle, his father was filled with compassion when he saw him from far away, ashamed, but on his way home. This is our God. This is his character. And though he is also a God of justice and righteousness, he is most of all a God of love, grace, and compassion. Dr. Golden Gay, a professor of Old Testament at Fuller Seminary, he wrote in his book, Biblical Theology, the trouble with Yahweh is that he's always inclined to give in to grace, compassion, and love. It's good news that Yahweh is flexible in this way. The prophets know that God's ultimate purpose is not imperiled by, fur by furthered by such uh, flexibility. 
does not mean God is inconsistent. It means God is reliably faithful, loving, compassionate, and gracious. God's life does not change. God's character does not change. God's truth does not change. God's ways do not change. God's purpose does not change, and God's Son does not change. How does it feel to know that God is flexible? Though he has commands for us to follow for our own good, his primary concern is for us to know his love, grace, and compassion. What's beautiful and mysterious about this grace is that he gives us freedom to change and to respond to his grace. He showed this in a multitude of ways in Jonah's story. Even in jo Jonah's failure and his disobedience, God provided him with a fish that saved him from drowning. God spoke to the fish who safely spit him out on dry land. God provided him with a plant that gave him shade when he was sulking and uncomfortable in the heat. But in the end, the story was never about Jonah because we don't know where he ended up after his little rant and meltdown. Ultimately, the book of Jonah is a story about God's love, grace, and compassion for all of us here and for a spiritually lost world. I'd like to invite us to take a moment to reflect on a few questions as we close. How does it feel to know that God is flexible, that he looks upon you with love, grace, and compassion, even when we're a long way off, even when others have written us off as failures? even when we've messed up or when we've been rejected? How do you respond to interruptions in your life? What would it look like to invite God's presence and voice in these interruptions? We all have our Nineveh. What's yours? Do you say, I'll serve you one less? Or, I'll follow you so long as? Or, I'll forgive people, just, just not this one person. Where does your identity lie and where does it stand in relation to others? God calls us to speak to our neighbors, especially those who are different, with tenderness and compassion and respect. How do you relate with people who are racially, religiously, and politically different from you? And now let's say our sending prayer together. Loving God through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, 
in the way of Jesus. Amen.